John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We pick it up right there after these things. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. The word walking there is in the imperfect tense. It means continuing to be walking. So it's not just that one afternoon he was walking along. It's that he was intentionally staying in the Galilee. Why? For he was unwilling to walk in Judea. Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. I'm still a little louder than I want to be, John. If you can bring it down just a a tad. Thanks. I keep hearing myself talking to myself and it's freaking me out, man! Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews there in the Greek, that's the Judeans. Okay, So making a distinction, John, between the Galileans, who were primarily Jewish, or at least a lot were. It was Galilee of the Gentiles. But the region that Jesus was teaching and ministering in, primarily Jewish. But they were Galilean Jews. And these are the Judean Jews, or the Jewish leadership, really is what he's focusing on there, who were seeking to kill him. Now in verse 2. The Feast of the Jews. The Feast of Booths. Also called Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering, was near. Verse 3, therefore, his brother said to him, leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he seeks, he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. In the Shakespearean play, Henry IV, part one, a character by the name of Falstaff pretends at one moment to lie dead on a battlefield, and when the danger passes that he's lying dead to try and shield himself from, he rationalizes his behavior. Rather than standing and fighting like a man, he lies down and pretends to be dead. But he says, and I quote, The better part of valor is discretion. In which, better part, I have saved my life. You've probably heard it said this way, caution is the better part of valor. Thing is, when Shakespeare wrote that, he intended it as a cowardly joke. He didn't intend it as a proverb. And so Shakespearean scholars today even will bristle when they hear the phrase, caution is the better part of valor, because it's a joke. Because in reality, it's not even what Shakespeare meant. Caution is not the better part of valor. Now, caution may be wise. There are times where caution, discretion is warranted, but it is not the better part of valor. Rick, why are you teaching us about Shakespeare? Because as John begins the seventh chapter of his gospel record, Jesus is not being cautious. You need to understand that. He's not staying in the Galilee out of some sense of cautious self-preservation or cowardly fear. It's not as it would be for me, perhaps for you, I'm not going to that town because they know me there and if they see me there they're going to kill me. So I better stay here. That's not the idea. There's something much bigger at stake. Jesus knows His time. 
He's staying out of Judea. He's primarily sticking to the Galilee region in the northern part of Israel because Jesus knows His time. You see, He's the hero. He's the valorous one who neither rushes ahead nor lags behind. He walks with divine determination. And something John points out throughout his gospel is Jesus is always very aware of where he is, what he's doing, and who he's interacting with. Jesus knows his time. At this point, beginning of John chapter 7, we are six months out from the crucifixion. It's Sukkot, which is in the fall. Jesus knows this, and so he's not holding up in the Galilee to save his own skin. He is biding, if you will, his time. He knows his time. This time is the Feast of the Jews. Of all the seven feasts of Israel, three are required pilgrimages to Jerusalem. This is one of them, and of those three, this is the big one. Most people would say, if asked, what's the biggest feast of Israel? They would say, what? Passover. That's our assumption. Passover is the big one. No. Au contraire. The Feast of Tabernacles is the biggest. It is the most celebratory. It is the one mentioned more than any other feast in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the one that has extreme significance to it, both for the Jewish people past tense, but also for the coming kingdom, future tense. Two things to note here in these opening verses of chapter 7. Number one is the feast. The feast. Secondly is the fam. And we'll get to them. But the feast. Sukkot. Again, feast of tabernacles or booths. It's commanded in Leviticus 23, verses 40 through 43. I'm not going to go into it in depth tonight because we're going to do that uh, probably a week from Sunday. But in this feast of ingathering, you need to know what happens at the end of of the harvest, that is October time frame for us, it's the month of Tishri for the Jewish people. Harvest time, the end of the agricultural year. The rabbis call this feast the most joyful feast of any feast of Israel. Feast of ingathering. The Feast of Tabernacles. It's the most fun. It's the one the kids look forward to. Because basically it's a massive camp out. Everyone pitches a tent. Everyone builds a little lean-to. Even if you have an apartment, you do it out on the deck of the apartment. I mean, it's amazing to see in Israel. You look at a big apartment building and all of the decks have these little lean-tos made out of palm branches and things like that. And it's vital as the backdrop of something Jesus will declare on the last day of this particular feast. And we'll get there probably not tonight. The kingdom's significance is huge. Zechariah told us, Zechariah 14, 16, it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. There in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the Millennial Kingdom, all the nations will gather annually to worship Jesus there. To go up and celebrate there with, with great joy. And here is the backdrop. And this is what's taking place. And this is a feast that's going on when he says the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. And now his family gets into it and begin to pressure him to go up. So first is the feast to keep in the background. Secondly is the fam. And we're talking about his biological half-brothers. The fam. John tells us quite clearly in verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. 
And that fits. It fits with the Gospel record. Going back to Mark chapter 3, and you can flip back there or just listen to me read this. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, which says, When His own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of Him, for they were saying, He has lost His senses. That would be like my brother showing up on a Wednesday night saying, Rick, you got to come with me. You're nuts. It's out of control, man. What was out of control there in Mark chapter 3? Well, there was no room even in the house where he was. And his teaching was going on and on. His healing was going on and on. So that he didn't even have a chance to get something to eat. And his family, his mother Mary, and his brother said, Enough of this. You've lost your mind. You're not that big a deal. And they go to take custody of him. We're told down in verse 31 of Mark chapter 3, His mother and his brothers arrived and were standing outside and they sent word to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Behold, your mom's here. It's my paraphrase, but I heard that when I was a kid. Rick, your mom's here. Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he answered them and he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about that those who were sitting around them, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Wait, wait. Jesus, who is your family? John 1.12 As many as received him. For to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. So just note this, remember this, His own kin did not, His brothers did not believe in Him. Even Mary was uncertain about all the things that she was treasuring up, Luke tells us, in her heart. None of them believed in Him until after the resurrection. Well, then it'd be hard not to. Right? When you see Him crucified. When you watch Him expire on the cross, and then He shows up a few days later. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Paul says specifically, Jesus appeared to James, his brother James, who would go on to write the Gospel of James. Or not the Gospel, but the the Epistle of James. And Jude, his other brother, would also write a letter, a, a single chapter that we have in the New Testament. I find it fascinating that both James and Jude begin their letters not with, we are the brothers of Jesus, but James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, because his brothers recognize something, that his blood is thicker than water. That blood in Jesus, my blood relatives, my closest blood relatives, are my brothers and sisters in Christ. By his blood. James understood that. Jude did too. But not now. Not at this point. And we can include, think about this, James, writer of that great epistle on faith, and Jude, the writer of that, of that single letter saying, contend for the faith. These two bros right now are not believing in Jesus. And they're included there in verse 5. They wouldn't believe until they saw Him. Well, if they didn't believe, then why are they pressuring Him to go up to the feast? What's that all about? You might consider it more of a taunt than an encouragement. They're saying, go on up to the feast, man. You keep saying you're Messiah. You keep you know, acting all messianic here. Big fish in a little pond. If you're serious about this, go up to Jerusalem and show yourself there. 
Go public there. Why would the Messiah be slumming around the Galilee? Playing small town. Jesus, take your show to the big times. Let's see how you do there. They're taunting Him. It's the only explanation for why these guys who did not believe in Him would tell Him, go up to the feast and magnify yourself there. Listen again to Jesus' answer when He says in verse 6, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. In other words, you guys can go anywhere you want. You can do anything you want. I can't. Why, Jesus? The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Now, you got to think for just a minute. If you were James or Jude or one of the other brothers or siblings of Jesus, and you're standing there and your brother says the world hates me, wouldn't you think he might be a little paranoid? Wouldn't you struggle a bit with his attitude? Like, what makes you so great? What makes you think so highly of yourself? Or are you just a little off your nut? I mean, come on. And yet... Jesus is just speaking what is absolutely true. That He doesn't have the kind of freedom that His brothers had. Why? Because His brothers hadn't made a splash in Jerusalem as He had just six months prior. His brothers weren't going around healing people. His brothers, more importantly, were not casting out demons like He was. Jesus had a mark on His back. He had a target. And He knew it. And he was fully aware of that, and it's not paranoia. He just says, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. When did he do that? John 3.19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Jesus comes on the scene, and as he begins his public ministry, he starts calling out evil. Be careful anytime you call out evil. Because evil doesn't like that. Evil is really good with live and let live. You go be a Christian... You hold up in your church. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. You can have your little building on North Whidbey Island. Whatever. But don't start calling us out. Don't start pointing out evil deeds and darkness in the world. Because you do that and we are going to be after you. It's the way it is. And Jesus calls it like it is. He says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Again, darkness hates exposure to the light. And everywhere Jesus, the light of the world went, darkness got exposed. And the dark did not like that. So he hesitates because he knows his time. It's Sukkot. Now think about this. Feast of Tabernacles. October. It's the final fall of Jesus' earthly life. He knows this. He knows when He's going to die. As I said earlier, six months out from the final Passover, and Jesus says it two ways. My time is not yet here. My time has not fully come. Jesus knows His time. Psalm 139.16 says, In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God knows every single one of your days, first to last. He's already fully aware of the day of your birth 
and the day of your death. He knows. Jesus knows. I don't think I could handle that knowledge. I come to you honestly. When I was a younger man, I might have said, boy, I'd really like to know. I don't want to know. I really don't. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 says, there's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. What if you knew the moment of your uprooting? If you knew specifically the date on the calendar, the exact hour and minute that you were going to expire, that you were going to die and exit this planet. Could you handle that? I propose to you that Jesus knew exactly when. When did He find that out? I think He always knew. I think the 12-year-old boy in the temple knew. I think as soon as human consciousness entered into the picture and his understanding began to develop, because he did develop as a child, though fully God, he was fully man, and developed as a child, I think he knew that his days were numbered. All our days are numbered. He knew what the number was. He knew when it would be finished. He knew it all his life. He knew it before He was born. He knew it from the very foundations of the earth. And again, what would you do if you knew the day and the hour of your departure? Did you make a bucket list? I started thinking about that. I make, I'd, start, I'd, I'd sit down. I'd start writing out. What, what do I need to accomplish? What do I need to get done? Because here's how much time I have to do it. And I've got to make sure I maximize this time. And what's amazing is because we don't know the day or the hour of our departure, we don't maximize the time. Think about how much time we waste. I love Jeff's comment. I've, you said this years ago, man, and it's just kind of rolled around in my head from time to time. I'm awake, I might as well be doing something. But it's true that we waste so much time. Jesus didn't waste a moment. He knew exactly what He was doing. He wasted 30 years of His life. No, He didn't. He knew exactly what He was doing. He came on the scene in His public ministry at exactly the right time. If Jesus had a bucket list, what would it look like? I think it would be a list of names. In fact, I think Jesus does have a bucket list. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. That's His bucket list. It's what He lived for. It's what He died for. Remember at the the feeding of the 5,000, the 12 had just returned from their Galilean preaching tour and everything was all exciting. And and at that time, Jesus said something absolutely awesome. They came back to Him and said, Jesus, we've been casting out demons. It's cool. We've been having a great time. we got power, man. This This is great. I'm into this stuff. And what did Jesus say? Luke 10.20 Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's His bucket list. Revelation 3.5 says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase His name from the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. And I think Jesus' bucket list is just a roll call of names. It's what He lived for. It's what He died for. 
And I think at the very bottom of Jesus' bucket list, it probably says something like this, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, if that's Jesus' bucket list, and I want to emulate Jesus, I want to live my life like Jesus, then what should my bucket list look like? Ski the Alps? Cliff dive in Hawaii? Or should it be a list of names of all the people that I'm praying for, all the people that I want to tell about Jesus, all the people that I am hoping will be saved? See, that's a bucket list. That's a list worth having. I I ran into someone. This is now, within the last year, let's just put it way out. Although it's probably more recent than that. Ran into someone, and this person was talking about how they had gotten involved in a small group Bible study. I, I said, that's great. And they said, no, you don't understand. This is our church. And I said, well, that's great. And they said, no, you don't understand. There's eight of us. And, and we have a, a table group. And we all meet once a week. And we share the teaching. And I am learning so much. And we're just having such a great time. It's not like you guys at the bridge... We're not growing. It's just the eight of us. We're not going to get bigger. And my heart sank. And my spirit fell. Because you know what? That is contrary to the will and purposes of Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. He's not into big churches. But he is into the list of names, one after another after another. And it it, it made my heart break, and then the more I thought about it, the more I just got ticked off. So basically what you're telling me is you're going to sit around the table and care for yourselves until Jesus comes. Well, that's not our calling. That is not what this is about. Jesus' bucket list was not limited to the number of people he could fit around the table. If it was, there'd be twelve. And they would have had that dinner, the Last Supper. And there would not have been any betrayer because there would have been no reason to betray Jesus because He just would have hung out with the twelve and then taken them to heaven and that would have been it if that had been His attitude. But Jesus knows the time. Always aware of the time. Now you might say, okay Rick, if Jesus came to die, that's all well and good. If He knew He was going to die, why put it off? Why not go on up to Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles? Why not take the risk? Just go for it, Jesus. You know you're going to die anyway. That's why you came to die. Just go die. Why wait? Jesus knows His time. And we need to understand that not only did it have to happen on Passover, but Jesus' death had to happen on this particular Passover. The one that would be six months from Sukkot. The one coming that next spring. That was the Passover that it was ordained for Jesus to die. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Daniel chapter 9 tells us. Turn over there. Daniel chapter 9. Now some of you might say, well, I think we've been over this. To which I would reply, yes, we have. A number of times. Let's do it again. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel is in the midst of receiving a response 
from the angel Gabriel, who is the angel, by the way, that God has assigned to Israel. Same angel who came to Mary and told her she was going to have a son in the name of Jesus because he was going to be the savior of his people, Israel. Anytime Israel is involved and God dispatches an angel, at least biblically speaking, Gabriel's the guy. He's our man. So he shows up and he's talking to, to Daniel and he's replying to Daniel and he begins to explain to Daniel what's coming. Listen to what he says, verse 24. Seventy weeks. And that's a bad translation. Seventy's good. Weeks is not. It's Shabuim. In fact, it's Shiva'im, 70. Shiva'im, Shabuim, which means units of seven. They say weeks because a week would be considered a unit of seven, seven days, right? Well, it's not just seven days. It's a unit of seven. Seventy sevens have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. So two periods of time, seven sevens, sixty-two sevens, and they're divided. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And then after the sixty-two sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Cut off, killed. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be a war or war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven. That's the final seven. But in the middle of the seven he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction one that is decreed and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And if you read that and say, what, huh? That's what Daniel said. Why did the angel Gabriel bring it in such mysterious language? Because this prophecy was to be sealed up until the end of time. Because this prophecy could not and would not be understood until it was unlocked with the book of Revelation. Which unlocks Daniel 9 and Daniel 9 unlocks Revelation. It kind of works as a you know co-equal keys. But it was something that would wait until now for understanding. Shiva'im, 70. Shabuim, units of seven. 77s. Gang, it's 490 years. How do you know that? Listen. March 14th, 445 BC. Some of you have this jotted down. King Artaxerxes gave a second decree. He would give two related to Jerusalem. His second one he gave on March 14th, 445 BC. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah, I want you to go back. I'm giving you permission to go back and to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Not the temple. Okay, Cyrus made that decree to Ezra. You can send your people back to rebuild your temple. This is a specific decree from Artaxerxes, by Artaxerxes, to go back, rebuild, and restore Jerusalem. Which is exactly what Nehemiah does in the book of Nehemiah. March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, if we start there, and we make a transfer from the Jewish lunar calendar, which is 360 days a year, 
to our Gregorian solar calendar, which is 365 days a year. And we make adjustments in there for leap years. And you can do all of this. Starting on March 14th, 445 B.C., go exactly seven sevens, 49 years, and 62 more sevens, or for a total... (laughs) I don't want to lose you here, but... What can I do? For a total of 173,880 days, and the prophecy requires, according to Gabriel telling this to Daniel, if it's 483 years, the prophecy requires seven sevens and 62 sevens, which is 69 sevens, or 483 years. It requires that from that point, that on this point, Messiah has to be in Jerusalem. Has to be then. My friends, when you add all that up, the prophecy says Messiah must arrive in Jerusalem by April the 6th, A.D. 32. Sukkot, this particular Feast of Tabernacles, it was A.D. 31. A.D. 32, that next spring. Jesus would come riding into Jerusalem on the donkey right on schedule. Jesus knows His time. And He knew that showing up on Sukkot was not okay. He could show up on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, great day for a crucifixion. He doesn't do it. Because it has to be on the right time. It was prophesied and Jesus, well, the testimony of all prophecy is Jesus. That's the point. Sukkot, A.D. 31, was not the right time. It would be the month of Nisan, A.D. 32. And that's when Jesus shows up. So, back in John chapter 7. That's where it comes from. That's part of much of the Bible prophecy. Jesus knew it, and He was following it to a T. Verse 9. Having said these things to them... He stayed in the Galilee. One more problem before we go on. Sukkot was a pilgrimage feast. One of three that was required for every Jewish male to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. This was law, man. Wouldn't Jesus be required to attend? Yes. And He did. He just didn't go with His brothers. More specifically and more pointedly, Jesus didn't go the way they challenged Him to go. He goes up, but not their way. Verse 10, when His brothers had gone up to the feast, then He Himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Why, Lord? Isaiah 55.8 My thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. He does not function the way we function. He doesn't think the way we think. He doesn't do the things we do. He doesn't market Himself with a miraculous wine incident. There could have been bottles of holy wine with Jesus' face on them. Cana wine. He doesn't do it. He doesn't promote himself with poolside paralytics. Could have done that. Everybody see what I just did? Just heal the guy. He's dancing around. Yep, that's me. 
Jesus doesn't capitulate to clamoring lunch crowds who want to make Him king. He says, nope, and He slips away. He goes about this all wrong from a Jewish, from a human perspective. He just doesn't do it the way I would do it. His brothers would do it the way I would do it. Promote yourself. Tell the world about yourself. Get up on a platform and declare who you are if you're the Messiah. Man, that sounds an awful lot like the devil. Doesn't it? Jesus won't be tempted. He won't do it their way. He doesn't do things the way we think. And by the way, the closer we get to His return, the more leery I am of any human directions to the feast. What do you mean? Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We had a conversation this morning in our staff meeting. I know I bring that up a lot on Wednesday, but that's because Wednesday morning is our staff meeting, so it's fresh on my mind. But we were talking about all the conferences out there and all the opportunities for staff to go and be trained to be effective in their ministry. And this is something I share with them all. We, we go to a, a Calvary conference every uh, September. Calvary Leaders, Pastors Leaders Conference down at Mount Lake Terrace. And it's marvelous because basically they just get up and teach the Bible. And we learn how to do ministry from God's Word. So I love it. I'm very much for that. But there are so many conferences. A lot of you women got back from the Beth Moore Conference. What I heard was best about the Beth Moore Conference was the Bible teaching. Because you were in the Word. That's what made it great. Not Beth and her big hair. (laughs) And no offense, because Beth is an amazing teacher. But it's not about Beth. It's about the Word of God. And I just find myself, and I, I may need, I don't know, counseling or something. I may need help with this. But I find myself leery even of Christian conferences because so much of what we see in the church today is is ways, effective strategies and programs and ways to get it done. And Jesus doesn't work that way. Jesus is not a businessman. Jesus doesn't develop a business plan, a marketing strategy. That's not the Lord. If he did, the Gospels would be written very differently. No, he's the God who comes in flesh and sneaks up to the feast. So no one knows he's there. And that's so different that I need to align my thinking to his thinking. I need to learn to do it his way and not my way. So even the seemingly good ideas and plans of man can be misguided. There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So Jesus goes covertly up to Jerusalem. And by the, time, by the way, this is the last time he will see the Galilee before he resurrects. So he's leaving the Galilee for the final time as he goes down to this feast. From there he's going to stay in the region of Judea. So verse 11 scene change fast forward now we're in the streets of Jerusalem Jesus is on his way or perhaps he's there and has kind of snuck in the back streets but on the streets of Jerusalem here's what's happening at the feast the Jews that is the Judeans the Jewish leaders were seeking him at the feast and were saying where is he 
There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. The difference in John between the Jews and the crowds, who were all Jews, the difference was authority. When John talks about the Jews, he's talking about the ruling class. When he talks about the crowds, he means the masses. The average Joseph, okay? The Jews, the rulers, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the chief priests, the scribes. Those are the Jews. The crowds are everybody else. And apparently word was out. No one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews, fear of the leadership. The Sanhedrin did not want to hear anybody talking about this misguided Messiah. This one who leads astray. And in fact, it's interesting, the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, number 43, states, Jesus was executed on Passover Eve because he was a beguiler who led Israel astray. So the Jews in the first century looked at Jesus as the misleader, as the liar, as the beguiler of the people. What's fascinating to me is that John would say that. I mean, listen to John's words again. Some were saying he's a good man, but others were saying, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Now, if you're writing a gospel about Jesus, I don't know if I... Should we write that, John? We should take that line out. Just leave it out. (laughs) By the way, there's something that got erased in the Gospel of John because the first century church was uncomfortable with it. And I'm not going to tell you what it is tonight, but I will tell you uh, maybe a week, two weeks from now. It's amazing. It's like, are you serious? Anyway, back to this. John says he leads people astray. Or at least he says people were saying that he was leading people astray. And I read that and I thought, wow. That's just the truth. Not that Jesus was leading people astray, but people were saying that He was. There were big arguments about His intentions, about what He was up to, what He was doing, and people were on both sides of the argument, and John just says this is the deal. Truth is what the truth is. And this was the truth. People were all stirred up about this Jesus. And God's Word does not ignore or deny what was truly going on. Verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, so three or so days into the seven-day feast of Sukkot, in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Why? Couldn't He control Himself? No. He knows His time. And it was a good time to go do a little teaching. Jesus knew. Verse 15. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Literally, the Greek says, How does this man have letters? How does he have letters? We would, in our language, say, Where did he get his PhD? Who trained him? What, What school of divinity did he go to? Did he get an MDiv? Where's this rabbinical degree come from? I've been asked that question, where is my biblical training? People have asked me that. They've come to the bridge. They've listened to me teach. And they've come up after and said, where did you get... Where did you get your training, Rick? Where did you go to cemetery? 
That's a grave undertaking. Right there. I didn't go to seminary. I studied the Bible. I read God's Word. My primary professor, I will be honest with you, was the Holy Spirit. Aren't we all members of the priesthood of believers? So, it's not degrees that matter to God. It's discipleship. It's not letters that are so important. It is His Lordship that matters. They look at Jesus and they say, where did He get His letters? Where did He get His training? Uh, who can He name, you know? Or who can He name drop to, to give some validity to what He's teaching? Jesus said in Luke 6.40, a pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. You know what's so cool to me? The earliest teachers of the Christian sect looked just like their rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua. Do you know what I'm talking about? Listen again to what they said about Jesus. How has this man become learned having never been educated? And what's marvelous is Peter and John looked exactly like that. Acts chapter 4 verse 13. As the Sanhedrin, they called for, these are the same ones who called for Jesus' execution. Now, call in Peter and John. They drag them in. And it says, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus, who himself was an untrained rabbi. Peter and John just looked like Jesus. And when they spoke, they spoke like Jesus. They sounded like their teacher. Listen, brothers and sisters, my point is this. The more ordinary you are, the more uneducated, the more unlettered you may be, the more glory goes to God when you speak His Word. Because you can't say, I lettered at Dallas Theological Seminary. I went to Fuller. And I got fuller and fuller and fuller. You know what? None of that stuff matters. Do you look like your Rabbi Yeshua? When you talk to people about Jesus, do they see Jesus? Do people recognize you as having been with Jesus? Man, if that's the case, He gets the glory. And please understand this. I I read this verse last week. I'm going to read it to you again. 1 John 2.27 As for you, and he's talking about you, you have an anointing. The anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. So the question is, are you willing to be taught by the Father? Do you desire to learn by the Spirit? To be lettered by God? If that's your heart's desire, then all you need do is start opening your Bible and praying, Spirit, teach me. God, show me what's in your Word. Lord, help me to understand. And Jesus emulates this for us right here. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, Where'd you get your letters? He answered and said to them, My teaching is not mine. Now, if anyone had the right to say, My teaching is my teaching, it was the living Word of God. You know, everything he spoke was God's Word. 
Because He is the Word. But He said, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. And then He says the key. If anyone is willing to do His will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. The best students of Scripture, those who really get it, those who really understand God's Word, listen, are those who are willing to obey. If you're not willing to obey, the Bible's not going to make a lot of sense to you. If you're not willing to do what the Word says, then as you hear the Word, it's not going to compute. It's not going to translate. Jesus says, if anyone is willing to do His will, He will know of the teaching. So all those who are in Israel in the day, in Judea or in the Galilee, listening to Jesus teach, any who came with a heart saying, I want to obey, I want to follow, I want to do God's will, they would hear and begin to understand what He was talking about. And they also would know, this is godly stuff. This is holy. This is... Spirit-inspired. They would understand that. Those who are willing to do His will. As James, his brother, no, the bondservant, as James wrote in James 1.22, prove yourselves doers of the Word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Verse 18, Jesus said, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus right there just declared his own absolute righteousness. He is the lamb without blemish. Jesus in a roundabout and very humble way just said, I am absolutely 100% righteous. And that's something only God can claim. Only God can say that He is absolutely perfect. And Jesus just declared that. He is the perfect man of God because He's the perfect God-man. And in declaring His perfection, understand that everything He did brought glory and honor to the Father in heaven. He's absolutely righteous, absolutely true, but He did nothing that glorified Himself. And we see this time and time again, without exception, as Jesus did miracles, as Jesus healed people, and as Jesus taught, the response of the Jewish people was to praise God. To glorify His Father, their Father in heaven. Matthew 15, 31. The crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Don't miss that it does not say they glorified Jesus. Now, He is the God of Israel. But as a man walking in the flesh, He didn't take the glory. He reflected it to the Father in all cases. And His challenge to you and me is to live that way. Matthew 5.16 Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In a church setting like this, it's important that each and every one of us ask ourselves this question. Why do I do what I do as a follower of Jesus? If you show up at the church and you say, hey, I want a vacuum. Why? Why do you want to do that? Say, hey, I'd love to 
be involved in this ministry or, or lead this small group or, or, or share in this work. I want to jump in over here. I want to be involved there. Why? All of my life, my answer to that question probably would have been because I want to grow in my faith. And the problem with that answer is it's about me. Jesus would say, live your life in such a way that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The why behind my desire to do what I do should always be so that God is honored. Why do you want to vacuum the foyer? To praise the Lord. Why do you want to be involved in this ministry? Because I want to glorify God. I say that as a challenge to myself. I got into ministry in the first place to make sure I would keep going to church. I mean, that's just not a good reason. (laughs) Whose glory do you seek? Your glory or His? Now, as we continue on, this verse came to mind. I'll share it with you. Proverbs 25.11 Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold... And an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Now follow on and listen to the remarkably articulate words of Jesus. Like apples of gold in settings of silver. As He speaks to the Jews in the crowd. Picking up again in verse 19. This is amazing. He says, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus is looking right at the Jewish leaders. And He is calling them on what their secret thoughts are betraying. Now the crowd doesn't know that. There are plants in the crowd that may know that, but by and large the crowd doesn't know that He has a death sentence hanging over His head. So they're kind of shocked that He would say this at all. But the leaders, they knew. Don't think that it didn't tick them off even more. You see, this is what light does. It calls out the darkness. And so Jesus makes a very clear statement about this. And and what's remarkable is He goes on now to pull them in talking about Moses. He sees right through the Jewish leader's desire to kill him, publicly exposing the secret desire, saying it out loud, why do you want to kill me? And to get where Jesus is going, you've got to look back. Let me just add one more thing. He's restarting a conversation here. Even as he says, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? He's restarting a conversation from the last time he was in Jerusalem when he healed the poolside paralytic. And you've got to remember that. In fact, let me read this to you. Back in John chapter 5. John 5.44. Listen to what Jesus was saying the last time He was in Jerusalem. Just for context here. He says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, or if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now Jesus goes right back to Moses. And what he's saying here is, you remember last time I was here? (laughs) We talked about these things before. 
Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you carries out the law? Verse 21, Jesus answered them and said, I did one deed, and you all marvel for this reason. Now, now pause right there. Grammatically speaking, uh, there's, a, there's a little issue here. There is no grammar in Greek. Or at least no punctuation. There's grammar, but there's no punctuation. So what this would read in the Greek is, I did one deed and you all marvel for this reason Moses has given you circumcision. So it would read like one long sentence. We have the punctuation because people come back, the translators come back and put it in to help us in our English reading it, right? There are a lot of of scholars who think perhaps verse 22 is in the wrong place and the period after I did one deed and you all marvel is in the wrong place and it should go after for this reason. Because it fits better there. So understanding that, I did one deed and you all marvel for this reason. You were all impressed when I healed the paralytic by the pool. You were all, you found that to be fantastic, fantastic, and yet you're trying to kill me, and Moses gave you the law. What are you talking about here, Jesus? The sixth commandment is you shall not murder. And yet they're seeking in their hearts to murder Jesus. And then he goes on. Moses, <laughs> Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers, you know, from Abraham. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? This is just brilliant teaching and very hard to counter. What Jesus is saying here is on the eighth day, the male child in Israel was required to be circumcised under law. On the eighth day, you shall circumcise the male child. If it happened to land on Shabbat, circumcision took precedence over Sabbath. Both are laws. You shall not work on the Sabbath. You shall circumcise every male child on the eighth day. What if it's on the same day? One of them has to win out. Circumcision wins out. They would circumcise anyway, even if it was on Shabbat. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you can slice and dice on the Sabbath, (laughs) is it so wrong that I cure and restore? You cut, I heal. Both on the Sabbath. And you're saying what I'm doing is wrong? You violate, break Sabbath because there's a higher law. Circumcision. Guess what? I, by your standard, violate Sabbath because there's a higher law. Mercy. Grace. Compassion. Healing. They're completely missing who God is. He's saying, you excise the law to fit your righteous standards, and I simply do what's right. Verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. See, here's the problem with the laws of man, and this includes the laws of our great nation. They are fraught with loopholes. It's the whole legalese, and it's the lawyers among us, and if you happen to be a liar, lawyer, 
The job of the lawyer is to find a way out for the client. And if he can do it, working the law to his advantage, he will. That's not right. It's legal, but it's not right. And Jesus says, just do what's right. Right is right. And what I love about Jesus, and you can take this to the bank, is He doesn't play games, and righteousness is not a guessing game. We know what's right, don't we really? Come on, we know what's right to do. In every given situation, we know. There's something in our heads. The spirit whispering, the moral conscience God has placed in our brains, we know as we think about things. But we rationalize and we play the lawyer. And we find the loophole. And we go all around it. And Jesus says, just do what's right. He says, judge by what is right. I love that. Judge with righteous judgment. Don't judge according to appearance. Don't play games. Don't mess around. Just judge right. Not by appearance. How do we do that? You look at how Jesus judges. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 11.3, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Why? Because it's right. And Jesus always does what's right. And we will declare that one day, and you may not always feel this way. You may not always feel like God does right by you. Your life may seem at times unfair. Circumstances might fall on your head, unexpected things, and you might say, that's not fair. But a day is coming, and you are already on record saying this, Revelation 19, verse 1, John says, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God because His judgments are true and right. And so everything that's ever happened in our lives, we will stand before Jesus at the throne one day and we'll say, You were right. I couldn't see it at the time, but you were right. He's always right. And He always does what's right. So if you're ever unclear on how to discern a situation, just ask yourself, how would Jesus judge this? What would He do with this? This is why I bring up taking Jesus to the movies. Would He go? Would He enjoy that game? Would He read that book? Would He fellowship with those people? Would Jesus be in that place? Judge the way Jesus judges. Verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? See, some kind of new word was starting to get out. Look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. What's going on here? They're debating. The crowd is buzzing. It's all about Jesus. They don't all agree with Him or agree about Him, but they can't stop talking about Him. 2,000 years later and it's the same. We still can't stop talking about Jesus. People may not agree, but they're still talking about Him. And so they're all abuzz and opinions are flying and some are saying, 
our leaders are allowing him to confront them bluntly. Do they think he's the Christ? And they're saying, but wait a minute, we know where he's from. What does that mean? There was kind of word on the street, a widely held belief in Israel in the day, that when Messiah came, he would be hidden away from public eye until suddenly he would make his glorious appearance. And they're looking at Jesus going, he's from the Galilee. We know where he's from. So can he be the Christ if we know where he's from? And they're misunderstanding. Ironically, that is kind of what happened, isn't it? Jesus was born in Bethlehem to the angel's song and the shepherd's appearance, but nobody else knew. Obscurity. Born in Bethlehem because Messiah must be born in Bethlehem, according to the Hebrew prophets. And then, taken away, hidden out in Egypt, brought back up from Egypt to Nazareth in the Galilee. Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) He's a Galilean. They didn't know he was from Bethlehem. They just thought he was from Galilee. In those days especially, if you were born in Bethlehem, you grew up in Bethlehem. That's where you stayed. So if you're from Nazareth, you must have been born in Nazareth, so you must have just been born a Nazarene, a Galilean, and so (laughs) we know where he's from. They didn't know. But they're working all these things around in their heads. For 30 years, Jesus was obscure, sitting on the carpenter's bench in Nazareth. And then he starts his ministry. He starts to teach and to heal, but he's careful. He knows his time. And then suddenly, in six months from this teaching, in six months from this moment, he's going to come riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, just as prophesied Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And 500 years later, that's exactly what Jesus did. And so, yeah, He made a big public splash. He showed up. But right now, they're trying to contrast the bench of a carpenter and the throne of Messiah. And they can't make the two work together. Well, verse 28 Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Here's the real problem. You don't know me because you don't know him. You're not understanding who I am because you don't understand who he is. If you believed in God, you would believe also in me. Jesus would say that many times in his ministry. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus always started with the Father. If you believe him, you're going to believe me. And then Jesus says something about himself that is so straightforward and yet so powerful. He says, I know the Father. He says, I'm from the Father. He sent me. I know the Father, I'm from the Father, He sent me. F.F. Bruce says the language is simple and unambiguous and the claim is august. That's huge. It's messianic. Verse 30, so they were seeking to seize Him and no man laid his hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. See, even the Spirit was at work, the Lord was at work protecting Jesus because it wasn't His hour so no one could get their hands on Him.
But many of the crowd, verse 31, believed in Him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, He will not perform more signs, more semion than those which this man has. Will He? And so they are struggling with this whole issue of faith and belief in Jesus. Well, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize Him. These are not Roman officers, they're temple officers. They're like the temple police. And so they send off this delegation to arrest Jesus. Hold that thought. Therefore, Jesus says, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to Him who sent me. And you will seek me, and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion or the diaspora among the Greeks, to the Jews dispersed throughout the world, and teach the Greeks, is he? I love that John quoted them saying this. They actually said it. John quotes it because that's exactly what was going to happen. He was going to go to the diaspora. He was going to go out to all the world, and the gospel would be preached to all the nations, so that the Jews first and also the Greeks could find salvation. So it's ironic, they said it, but it actually did happen exactly like that. Verse 36, what is this statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Contrast that statement with something Jesus will tell his disciples six months hence on the night of his betrayal. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and you receive you to myself that, listen, where I am, there you may be also. But what does he say to the Jewish leaders, to the crowds? You will seek me and will not find me. For where I am, you cannot come. Where I am, there you will also be, is the promise to any who believe in Him. Where I am, you cannot come, is the promise to anyone who rejects rather than receives Him. Now, verse 37 through 44, we're going to cover at a later date. So I want you to skip down to verse 45 and we will come back to it. It's powerful, but it needs much more time than we have to give it tonight. Down in verse 45, we pick up from what happened in verse 32. That is the police, the temple police. The officers are sent out to arrest Jesus. Watch what happens, verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Well, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. I just love that. They went out to capture Jesus and instead they were captivated by Jesus. They were in awe of Jesus. They could not bring themselves to arrest Him because His teaching was so arresting. And they have to go back empty-handed. You should have heard Him. I mean, you go arrest Him. He's amazing. And going on. The officer, well, the Pharisees, verse 47, then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? In other words, you guys are morons. 
Not like the erudite elite. (laughs) But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Wow. When those in authority... A little heart check for you. When those in authority start to denigrate people under their charge, the problem is with those in authority. It's in their heart. There is a heart problem. 1 Peter 5.2 Elders are told to shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And I say this to honor your shepherds. These are guys with good hearts. These are guys who are humble. These are guys who are listening to Jesus. And these are guys who are privileged to be bondservants in this fellowship. And if it ever turns any other way, this fellowship will fall apart and I'll be the first out the door. But I'll be the first to encourage you, if the hearts of the leaders are bad, don't follow the leaders. In fact, what Paul always said is, follow me as I follow Christ. As long as we see Paul following Christ, I'm right on his heels. The second he makes a left turn and Christ is over here, I'm going to Jesus. May it be the same with us. Here are the leaders of the Jewish people and they are denigrating, they are calling out, they are scorning their own people. They're all just a bunch of idiots. Anyone who believes in this Jesus, they're all accursed. Ironically, there's one Pharisee sitting there who believes in Jesus. Verse 50. Nicodemus. He who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Man, they are hostile. And they're angry. And they're bitter. And all Nicodemus asked, Nicodemus didn't even defend Jesus here. All Nicodemus did was say, Shouldn't we hear from him? Galilean, they call out. And it's their way of saying, country bumpkin. You're not like us. If you think it's worth hearing from this Galilean rabbi, you're as bad as the crowds. And in their hostility, they revealed their own lack of biblical knowledge. Listen again to what they said. No prophet arises out of Galilee. You know what? They're absolutely right, except for Jonah. 2 Kings 14.25 says, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. Where's Gath-Hefer? A small town in the Galilee. In Jesus' neighborhood. Jesus grew up in Jonah's hood. I mean, they were right same place. Just a stone's throw north of Nazareth is Gath-Hefer, and that's where Jonah was from. Isaiah had nothing but good to speak about the Galilee. Isaiah 9 verse 1, There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, He's going to come from the Galilee. He's going to shine in the Galilee. And the light did dawn in the Galilee. And the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were blind to it. They couldn't see the light when it came. Why? Because as Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. The light was there. Right on time. Back in verse 33, Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to Him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Right now, He is preparing that place for us, that where He is, we may be also. Jesus knows His time. Do you? Do you know the hour? Father, I pray that we would be alerted, that we would be awake, that we would be prepared, that we would be sober, that we would be as children of day and as children of light, that the day not take, overtake us, that the day not surprise us, but that we would be ready the moment that you call. And for anyone who says, well, we're not supposed to know the day or the hour. Lord, you never said that. You just said no one will know the day or the hour. But you also called us to be people who are are eyes wide open to the signs of the times. Living in the times of the signs. You knew your time perfectly. You know your time perfectly, Father. And so we pray to you tonight. Reveal to us the time. Prepare us that we might be ready at a moment's notice to go when you call. And until you call, Lord, may we be pouring over our bucket lists of names of people who need to be where you are, that where you are they may also be. Thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.